Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter Three, The Pancakes of Damocles. After throwing the chickens some scratch for breakfast, Martin set out harvesting the last of the pole beans and pulling up their poles. Most of the pods were dry enough to rattle as he dropped them into the basket hanging from the crook of his elbow. Doing chores before breakfast always sharpened his appetite. When he set the basket inside the back door, the smell of something toasted almost set him to drooling. Well, whatever that is, it sure smells good, he said. I'm going to take these poles down to the shed first. Be back in a minute. As Martin neared the shed, he heard snapping and cracking behind the woodpiles. He quietly set down the poles and slowly pulled the revolver out of his coat pocket. He had heard coyotes yipping before dawn, so approached cautiously. Behind that last woodpile, Margaret was bent over a cardboard box. She was breaking small branches of windfall across her knee and putting them into the box. Ah, oh, it's you? You're not in the kitchen, he said. No, I'm gathering more kindling for the walkers. Lance's test fire yesterday used up most of what I brought them, so I told them I'd get them another box of kindling and bring it over. But if you're out here, he pointed back up to the house, she insisted on making breakfast this morning, said she wanted to pull her weight. Oh, but uh, I don't think she knows how to cook. Pfft, tell me about it. Couldn't you have rescued someone a bit more capable? I didn't rescue anybody. She had no place to stay. We had a room. That's all. It's not a rescue. That's not how she sees it. Oh, never mind. It still wasn't a rescue. But you didn't just set her loose in the kitchen, did you? No, Margaret snorted. And I'm not cleaning up after her either. Whatever mess she makes, she's cleaning up. Well, of course. But then what is she cooking? Martin tried to identify the smell he caught from the back door, but couldn't. I showed her how to make pancakes. That was pancakes? Margaret looked puzzled at his question. It's supposed to be. I have a few boxes of mix. Figured even she couldn't screw that up. You have boxes of mix? When did that happen? You despise boxed mixes. I do, but they were a gift from the Sunday school kids. They meant well. I couldn't just throw them away, but I had no idea what to do with them. Until now. A box of mix seems safe enough for even her to try. Martin and Margaret stepped through the back door to see the table set, plates, forks, butter, and syrup. Oh, good, said Susan brightly. You're just in time. Take off your things and have a seat. Breakfast is ready. The last word had a singing tone to it. They took off their coats and washed their hands in the kitchen sink. Margaret let out a little, hmm, of surprise. The sink was not full of dirty bowls and spoons. Martin glanced around, half expecting to see a pile of dirty bowls in a corner. Other than one upside-down mixing bowl, he saw nothing out of place. He had half expected a mess, too. After they took their seats, Susan set a platter of pancakes in the center of the table with a look of great accomplishment. Only six? asked Margaret. Those boxes make twelve to fifteen pancakes. Where are the rest? Susan's look of pride fell away as she took her seat. These are the good ones. Oh. 
Martin quickly served up a pair of pancakes onto everyone's plate to break the awkward silence. He drizzled on some syrup, cut a wedge of pancakes, and was about to push it into his mouth when he noticed both Susan and Margaret were staring intently at him. He felt like a royal food taster. Was the king's meal poisoned? He bit and chewed bravely. Well, what do you think? Susan asked. Her face was a mixture of enthusiasm and trepidation. Margaret staring at him, too. Her face was a hint of worry and trepidation. Both watched him intently. Good Lord, Martin thought. Forget the sword of Damocles. These are the pancakes of Damocles. He realized that if he had said they were good, Susan would be happy, but Margaret would feel threatened. Being a good cook was one of her sources of pride. No rookie cook with a box of mix should instantly make good food. If he said the pancakes weren't good, Margaret would feel fine, but Susan would feel bad. He knew she wanted to prove that she wasn't a helpless city person. Her efforts to learn skills needed encouragement. What do I say? There's no way to win this. He felt like a soldier that had stepped on a landmine that didn't blow up. Was it a dud, or would it explode when he stepped off of it? Martin knew that he couldn't keep chewing that bite of pancake indefinitely. They were both waiting for him to say something. He swallowed hard. Well, Susan's face was almost imploring. Margaret's face had the start of a worried frown. They're pretty good, he said cautiously. Susan beamed. Margaret's eyes narrowed. They're not as good as Margaret's, of course, but they're okay. Margaret's semi-scowl softened into a small grin. She was still the benchmark. Susan's smile remained, happy to have passed her first test. Both women were smiling. Martin could feel himself slump and blow out a little sigh of relief. He had stepped off of the mine, and it hadn't exploded. <sighs> Life in a minefield was not easy. Oh, I am so glad, Susan said. I really wanted them to turn out, but you don't know how hard it is to cook on top of that wood stove. Martin caught Margaret rolling her eyes. She stopped in mid-roll when he gave her his stern dad look. First it was too hot, then not hot enough, then it was too hot again. I mean, it was nearly impossible not to burn them. I had to watch them all the time. They finished their breakfast, with Susan recounting the ups and downs of her cooking experience. After carrying the dishes in so that Susan could wash up, Margaret went down to the garage for another box to hold more kindling. Martin poured a cup of coffee. So, where are the other pancakes? he asked. With a hint of shame, she pointed at the upside-down bowl on the counter. Martin lifted the bowl and examined the dark disks. Oh, what? These aren't so bad. Aren't so bad? They're totally ruined. Bah, said Martin. You always hear on TV ads how the best baked goods are golden brown, right? Susan squinted at him skeptically. Yeah. Well, these are just extra golden, that's all. What are you talking about? They're burnt. You keep saying that wrong. Extra golden. Don't be so negative. We just pick off some of these crispier edges and see, the middles are fine. He tore off a bit and tossed it in his mouth. She, these are just fine. Extra golden. These will make a fine snack during the day. We'll save the edges for the chickens. Nothing goes to waste. 
Martin was pulling up dead pumpkin vines from the front garden when the crunch of tires on the dirt road caught his ear. There had been almost no traffic on old Stockman Road since he had gotten home, so the sound was unusual. They weren't driving very fast, whoever it was. People only drove slow on his road when they were looking for something, but with the houses so far apart on old Stockman, there was little to look for, unless, perhaps, it was trouble. He realized that if it had been trouble coming down the road, he should have been ready. His pocket was empty. Pulling up dead vines didn't seem to warrant being armed. There was no time to go inside and get the revolver. Whoever it was would come into view in a few seconds. Perhaps he didn't need a gun. Perhaps it was someone just driving by. He mentally traced his steps to the front door, should he need to run inside and get a gun. Martin watched to see whoever it was that would emerge from behind the trees before deciding whether to bolt inside or not. An older Subaru wagon rolled down the gentle hill and onto the Simmons's driveway. Martin didn't recognize it at first, but the ample amateur body repair with sheet aluminum and pop rivets could be none other than his son's car, affectionately nicknamed The Beast. Dustin! Martin strode up to the car, arms wide. Oh, it's so great to see you two! He gave his son a fatherly hug, but got a stronger hug back than he expected. Margaret stepped out of the front door to see what all the commotion was. She stood at the top of the stairs. Dustin! she said enthusiastically, and then rather flatly she added, Judith? Mrs. Simmons? said Judy, matching the flatness from behind her car door. What brings you down from the mountains, Martin asked. From your last text, it sounded like you were all set to go Grizzly Adams up there. Yeah, well, we were, but we ran into a pretty significant snag. I knew you and Mom had room, a wood stove, and, well, so I thought. Of course, of course, you're both welcome to stay. Come on in by the fire. Martin led Dustin and Judy up the front steps. As he passed Margaret, he whispered out of the side of his mouth, It's bound to go better this time. We all know the boundaries. As they topped the stairs into the living room, Dustin stopped. Susan sat at the far end of the couch with an awkward smile. Oh, hello, said Dustin. He looked at Martin for an explanation. Dustin, this is Susan. It's kind of a long story, but the bottom line is that she had no place to stay during this outage, so we're letting her stay in Lindsay's room. Susan, this is my son Dustin and his lovely wife Judy. Margaret pulled in a couple of dining room chairs and set them near the wood stove. Martin brought in a pair of mugs from the kitchen and poured coffee. Are you hungry? Margaret asked. I wasn't going to start lunch until later, but I could. No, but thanks, Mom. We ate a bit in the car. What we are is really tired. We've been awake all night. Well, sit and warm up, Martin pointed to the chairs. What made you leave the mountains? From the way you talked before all this, I figured you were all set to hunker down. We thought we could make a go of it up there, Dustin said as he sat. I mean, we were getting by, right? Judy nodded on cue, but with a worried look. We ran into a problem, though, and I knew we needed to get out of town. When the power went out, I was at work, Dustin sipped his coffee. Jeff kept the store open because we were doing a brisk business selling batteries. I snagged some packs of rechargeable double-A's for myself. Good thing, too. All the batteries were going so fast. About three o'clock, we sold our last battery, cannibalized from an R.C. car. 
Jeff sent me home and closed up. I had to stay at the daycare until like six o'clock, said Judy. Some parents came right away to get their kids, but a couple of kids looked like they were going to have to stay overnight. I guess the last couple of parents had a hard time getting in. The first night at the cottage wasn't so bad, said Dustin. We had our candles going when it got dark. You uh, had heat in the cottage, right? asked Martin. You said you had propane? Yeah, we could cook and stuff, but without power, the heater's blower didn't run, so the burner wouldn't stay running, an over-temp thermostat thing. We ran the oven for heat. But I was worried about carbon monoxide, interrupted Judy. Don't want to mess with that, added Martin, with a glance at Susan. Yeah, so I got the idea to run the oven during the day, with the windows open a bit, but had it heat up our heavy skillet and pots of water. Then, at night, I'd shut it off, and we coasted on the leftover heat in the pots. It's a little cottage, so it sort of worked. But by morning, it was almost down to fifty degrees in there. The cottage isn't strong in insulation. By the second night, we knew we had to sleep with socks and sweaters on. It was a manageable routine, if not very romantic. Judy blushed and quickly got back on topic. But then the gas ran out. Oh, no, said Margaret, in that way that mothers do. What did you do? I tried our landlord, since they just live up the street, said Dustin. They have a wood stove and plenty of wood, but his whole family had come to stay. There was no room for us, too. He was sorry and stuff, but couldn't help since the cottage didn't have a wood stove. On the way back to the cottage, I remembered that our landlord had a lot of bricks out behind the cottage, left over from a sidewalk project. I stacked them up to make a little rocket stove on our front walk. It worked great for heating up soup or hot dogs. I started cooking up stuff from the fridge that would spoil soonest. But the really cool part was that I heated up bricks on it. I figured we needed more mass for overnight. I carried the bricks inside with oven mitts, said Judy, and stacked them on the cookie sheets under the bed. It was a little tedious, Dustin said with a knowing sigh. And the cottage was cool again by morning, but better, mid-fifties. We were heating without any gas and getting by. I went up to the woods on the slope behind the cottage and gathered sticks. There were jillions of those. No way I could use up all the sticks on that mountain. I figured we could probably get by for a few weeks until they fixed the power, cooking and heating with sticks. It got a little harder on Thursday, interjected Judy. That afternoon, the water started to give out. Dustin nodded. I figured the town's storage tank on the hill had run dry. It trickled for a while, so I filled up whatever I could while Dustin was up gathering sticks. I had a few big soda bottles and a bucket filled before it stopped altogether. What about that stream? Martin asked. Weren't you telling me there was a stream nearby? Well, not all that nearby. Over the ridge, but yeah. That's why I wasn't too worried about the town water giving out. Things were getting a bit more rustic. Martin glanced at Susan, who broke a little smile at the word. But I figured we still had shelter, a source of heat, a way to cook, plenty of food. And we still had a source of water. There was a lot more work, but it was still doable. I wasn't that worried. We had some necessities, Judy said, but it was so freaky quiet. There was no TV, no internet. I couldn't get anything on the car radio. At night there was just no sounds at all, not even crickets. 
after a couple of days of the power being out, seems like almost everyone in town had packed up and gone south. I could see the highway from up on the slope when I was gathering sticks. Stuff all bundled on car roofs, trailers, Dustin added. It looked like refugees fleeing a war zone or something. Of course, resumed Judy. Most of the people in town by this time of year were tourists, leaf peepers, so no surprise that they all packed off. I mean, last winter it was really quiet in town with just a few locals, but after the tourists left, it was creepy quiet. I wondered if most of the locals had left, too. We hardly saw any other lights or cars. We never heard any sounds of people anywhere. Until yesterday, Dustin said. Yesterday, a little after sundown, I was cooking up some mac and cheese outside on my rocket stove. Judy was in the house, filtering the water I boiled. Otherwise, she might have seen him coming. I heard voices outside, so I came out to see who it was. I'd never seen him before. The guy said he and his friends were up on vacation from Georgia, you know, to see the foliage, but were stranded by the outage. He seemed really friendly, and said he was out searching for food since they were running low, and he said he was really hungry. I offered him a plate of mac and cheese. He sat and ate it, but kept asking questions about how we were getting by, and were we okay or worried about anything. I tried asking him some questions about his friends, like where they were staying and stuff. But I noticed his answers were always vague. There were just a couple of them, or over beyond the highway, stuff like that. That was setting off little alarm bells in my head. For me, it was how he spoke. He talked with a slow southern accent, which figured, since he said he was from Georgia. But every now and then, when he was talking faster, New Jersey would break out. Graham and Gramps came from New Jersey, so I knew that accent well. I asked him if he'd ever lived anywhere besides Georgia, thinking maybe he grew up in Jersey. But he said no, lived there all his life. I felt the shiver run down my back. Why would a guy lie about where he came from? I didn't like it. It creeped me out, too. But I offered him some more mac and cheese. He was playing all friendly-like, so I thought I'd work that angle, too. He sort of asked, but was really just telling us that he and his friends would be back for breakfast. I joked a little, asking how they liked their eggs cooked, but inside, it was all code red. Me too. I saw Dustin playing along, so I did too. It took everything I had to smile and wave as he walked down the street. Once he was out of sight, Judy and I ran in the house and started loading up boxes and bags. We knew we had to get out of there fast. All his questions, he was just sizing us up. Him and his friends might come back for breakfast or they could come any time that night. I had my shotgun, but what if there were lots of them, and they rushed us? I figured we had just a little time while he walked back to his friends and told them about us, and planned whatever they were going to do. Maybe a half hour, maybe an hour. I wanted to be gone before they came back. We had our car bags all set in the car already, said Judy, so I concentrated on filling up our laundry totes with our food and our water. Dustin said we were coming down to your place and we needed to bring supplies. Glad you did, said Martin, with a glance at Margaret. I packed up some winter clothes in the laundry duffel and got my shotgun. I only had six shells. Can you believe it? Another box of shells has been on my Walmart list for months, but I just never did it. Anyhow, I kept lookout outside with my shotgun, staying out of sight behind the beast. He made good cover out in the driveway. 
Judy loaded him up with boxes and stuff. My eyes were pretty used to the dark, so I could see if anyone was coming up the street. It was crazy. Packing in a hurry with only a little red flashlight, it made everything go slower. I was glad Dustin was watching out, so I could just concentrate on packing. We had the car loaded as full as we could get it in about an hour. We got in as quiet as we could. We didn't even snick the doors shut so we'd make no noise. I had no idea if they were going to come back on foot or what. I knew the sound of a starter would carry a long way, so I had to get out of there fast once I started the engine. I had no idea if they had a car, or if they'd follow us, or if they had a roadblock on the highway or what. But I figured the sooner we were out of there, the less ready to come after us they'd be. I had the GPS ready, said Judy. But I had to keep a towel over my head so the screen wouldn't ruin Dustin's night eyes. Even on night screen, it's really bright. The beast didn't give me any trouble starting up, for a change. Thank God for that. I hung a left and went the opposite way down the street from where the guy went. I didn't turn on my lights and used my handbrake so I wouldn't light up my brake lights. I had to turn the dash lights off, too, to keep a smidgen of night vision. I could just make out the road as a darker patch between the slightly lighter yards. I watched the GPS and told him when to slow down and turn. It was nerve-wracking, let me tell you. Kierkegaard's leap of faith got nothing on our night driving without lights, and only your co-pilot's verbal directions to go by. We did pretty good, though, Judy comforted him with a pat on the arm. We only hit that one mailbox and that other th thing. Yeah, I don't know what that was. I hope it wasn't a person. We said we weren't going to worry about that, remember? We got through. That's what counts. Wait, you left at night? Margaret asked. It's not even a two-hour drive. Yeah, if you're using the main roads and if you can use your lights, Dustin countered. I didn't want to have any taillights on in case they were following in a car. After I took the back roads around town, I decided it was probably best to stick to back roads. We thought there'd be less traffic on the back roads, too. And there wasn't anybody out driving. It was still slow going, though. Even driving it just to crawl felt really fast. I was surprised how much I could actually make out the road in the dark. No details, of course, but I could tell where the sides were. We had quite a scare outside of Farmington. It was much narrower road and harder to see. We came over this little rise, and something didn't look right. I mean, I could make out something, but still, it just seemed like there was something in the road. I thought maybe it was a moose or a deer or something. Whatever it was, I sure didn't want to hit it. I hated to do it, but I turned on my headlights. It was a man in the middle of the road. Must have scared the crap out of him. Oh, sorry, Mom. He dropped the armload of firewood he was carrying, then couldn't decide which way to run. Finally, he ran to a pickup parked beside the road. I had to swerve around the logs he dropped on the road. The back of his truck was about a quarter full of logs. Across the road was a house. I could see the wood stacked beside the garage. I'm guessing he was stealing firewood when we happened to come by. Did he follow you? Martin asked. I was worried about that, too. But no. He turned and went the other way. I found a dirt driveway lined with spruce trees and turned in to stop. It took a good half hour before my night vision returned enough to drive without lights again. Might have been a good time to catch a few winks, but well, my heart was pounding too fast for sleep. When the first hints of dawn started, it was a ton easier to see. I could go faster than walk, 
by 5.30, I was up to posted speeds. Even when it was light out, we saw almost nobody on the roads. I was glad to get out from under that towel, too, said Judy. I tried getting something on the radio, since I didn't have to navigate any more, but I couldn't get anything. No music, no news. I couldn't get anything on the radio up at the cottage, either. Oh, I would have happily listened to Swiss yodeling or something, just to hear something. But there wasn't anything, just static. I've picked up a little news on our radio, now and then, said Martin. But the house has always been in a bit of a dead zone. Have you heard what it is? asked Dustin. I mean, it's kind of like Jericho or Walking Dead, but without the zombies. Nothing for certain. I've heard plenty of theories, but the bottom line is that some big random pieces of the power grid all failed around the same time Monday morning. It's all across the country, and apparently around the world. Whoa, whispered Dustin. It's so it's not like a rogue nuke EMP thing, or even a coronal mass ejection. I guess not, said Martin. We can try listening to the radio tonight and see if there's any news, but that's after you two have had some rest. Yes, Margaret stood up. I'll get some sheets and pillows and make up a hide-a-bed down in the family room. She quickly retrieved a stack of sheets and a blanket, all neatly folded in thirds, and led Judy downstairs. We'll unload the car while you two tend to the bedding. Martin and Dustin headed toward the door. Can I help, too? Susan followed them. I, I want to help do something. It took several trips to unload the Subaru, even with three people. The clothes and personals went downstairs. Boxes of food were stacked on the kitchen floor. Margaret insisted on inventorying and putting away the food herself. Martin leaned on the back deck railing, looking down at the woodpiles, the shed, and the road beyond the trees. Susan stepped out of the back door, but stood a safe distance away. She doesn't want me helping to put the food away. Isn't there something useful I could be doing? Well, I was just sizing up a task that needs doing, but it'll be a lot of work. That's okay. Country people aren't afraid of hard work, she said brightly. Martin looked at her. Country people? Yes, I decided that I am no longer a helpless city person. From now on, I am a sturdy country person. Martin suppressed a chuckle. You just decided, huh? Okay, then, sturdy country person. Do you see that woodpile back there? The far one, behind the line of the others? Susan nodded. Now, do you see the empty pallet over here? She nodded again. The task is to move all of the wood that's stacked on that back pallet to this empty one. Um, that sounds like busy work. I want to be useful, not just busy. No, this is important work, and I was about to do it myself. I noticed that that one pallet of wood back there can't be seen very well from any window of the house. It would be pretty easy for someone to park up the hill, walk down behind the shed, and load their arms up with wood, all without being seen. Remember what Dustin was saying about surprising that guy stealing firewood? I don't want that to be us. Oh, okay. You'll find a pair of leather gloves in the bench by the door. Country people wear leather work gloves, he winked. Pfft, I knew that, she smiled and turned to go get the gloves. Relieved of his firewood handling, Martin set himself to clearing out the scrub and brambles behind the shed. He cut down several small hemlock trees near the road that blocked the view. While he was thinking of visibility, he walked slowly around the house, taking out saplings and bushes that blocked the view from the house. 
The scrubby oak and beech would hang on to their leaves all winter. There were still unavoidable blind spots, like behind the chicken coop or the garden shed, but now even the approaches to those blind spots would be exposed. He stood on the deck and surveyed his progress. The property looked a bit naked after the trimming, but he could see a few dozen yards farther into the woods than before. It would certainly not qualify as a military position's kill zone, but it was better than it was before. He stomped off the mud from his boots before going inside. Margaret sat at the dining room table with her books and papers. "'She's almost done moving the pallet of wood,' he said as he sat down. Martin thought it best to avoid calling Susan by name. "'She's trying to be a worker.' Margaret only responded with a, "'Hmm.' "'Dustin and Judy still sleeping?' "'Yes. So what are you calculating now?' Margaret pushed the pad of paper away and rubbed her eyes. "'I've been refiguring our food supply and adding in what Dustin and Judy brought. "'That seems like a lot, but how much is it really?' "'Not as much as we might have liked,' she said with a sigh. "'Dustin has always been fond of pasta, as you recall, and never been one for vegetables. "'He always had a sweet tooth, too.' From your tone, I'm guessing his supplies didn't add much to our timeline. Not really. Figuring five months now. They brought enough carbs to keep us even. We'll still run out sometime in mid-January. When it comes to proteins, however, we lost ground. We'll run out of those a bit after Thanksgiving. After supper, all five were seated at the dining room table. A kerosene lamp sat in the center. Beside the lamp sat a big pot. Margaret took off the cover. "'Rice and beans?' Dustin said. "'Spanish rice and beans,' said Margaret, "'with some of my own salsa, a little broccoli, and canned corn.' "'Oh,' Dustin tried to conceal his disappointment, "'but was not successful enough to fool a mother's ear. "'What?' Margaret asked. "'I mean, Spanish rice and beans is good, too.' It's just that every time I came down to visit before, you'd make spaghetti or hamburger cabbage hot dish or... Or one of your other favorite dishes. Martin finished his sentence. Yeah, I guess. Well, said Margaret, as she scooped up a serving onto his plate, we're going to have to get used to simple meals, and probably smaller portions, too, from now on. But we just brought down a whole bunch of food. Margaret gave Martin a look that he knew well. It was his job to deliver hard news, not hers. Uh, and you, you did real good, said Martin. Excellent thinking to bring supplies with you. He almost added, instead of showing up with nothing, but realized that that was what Susan had done, so he cut his sentence short. He still felt protective of her feelings. But, Dustin knew his father's tones to recognize when there was more. But it's not as much as it might seem. Since this outage is pretty much all over, there probably won't be any food in the grocery stores again for a long time. Maybe months. This might be all there is. So the sooner we start conserving, added Margaret, the longer it will last. The rest of the meal was spent in silence, except for the scrape of spoons on plates. Well, Dustin and Judy had quite a scare. Sometimes you just have to trust your instincts. Thanks for listening.